0: Welcome everyone to Davos' Fingers, Episode Four. The R's in "Germ" are for ruthless times two. In contention for longest episode title ever. All right. So tonight we have the uh, all the usual cast of characters: Scott, myself. We have Brooke, and we have Matt. Hello. Ready ready to inundate you with some fun review and analysis of Game of Thrones chapters 15 through 19. That'll be Sansa's first POV chapter, Eddard's third, Bran's third, Catelyn's fourth, and Jon's third. Uh, Just a reminder, we are spoiler-free until the very end of the podcast. We have a special segment then called Davos After Dark, uh, which will go and get all spoilerific for everyone. Don't worry, though, we'll warn you, we'll play a nice little music segment for you to uh, notice and jump off before we spoil anything for you. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to contact us to provide feedback, ask questions uh encourage the exploration of a given topic reach out to us through many ways uh davosfingers.com uh, which will redirect you to our tumblr site uh you can email us at we are at gmail.com uh, twitter at davosfingers or you can find us and like us on facebook we you know the podcast has been uh really successful so far really excited about all the people tuning in uh but we'd love to hear from you so uh reach out so uh, we're going to start today with uh, with Sansa's first POV chapter. And I think Matt's going to walk us through. Matt, go for it.
1: Well, it was fun to get inside Sansa's head for the very first time, right? It was uh, kind of interesting. Yes. Uh, the, the chapter starts out with us um, getting a glimpse of her little relationship with Arya, which is just fantastic. Uh, they were getting ready to go spend the day in the with the queen and the princess and sansa of course was very excited she'd gotten all dolled up for it and everything Arya wasn't ready at all she was all dirty she'd been playing outside with her wolf and uh, all the other kids running off and everything and and that upset sansa that Arya wasn't taking it seriously Arya said she wasn't gonna go and she ran off sansa decides all right i'll go by myself so she goes to find the queen and the princess and who does she stumble upon but a couple of new characters, three to be exact. We get Barristan Selmy, who is the uh, leader of the Kingsguard, or the, the group of select knights that protect the king. Uh, also meets Renly Baratheon, who is um, King Robert's youngest um, brother, and also on the High Council, if I'm not mistaken. At small Council, excuse me. That's a little Mormon coming out in me. The Mormons <laughs> will get the high council part.
2: <laughs> You're right. is on the council too.
1: Indeed. Is it all the the captain of the King's Guard gets on the gets on the small council? I
2: don't know.
1: I I, I don't know. Anyways, and the final one is Ilan Payne, who is uh the King's Justice, in other words, the head executioner. And I thought it was interesting that Ilan Payne accompanied them, but uh, when they were just coming out to meet the king and escort him back, but anyways they they brought him along too uh They have a few exchanges, Sansa's scared to death of ill Payne and and wonders why he won't even talk to her and then he find then she finds out he doesn't have a tongue he can't talk, and that answered that question for her pretty quick. Uh, With these new arrivals and visitors, the Queen tells Sansa that they're going to have to put their day on hold. And so uh, she suggests that Sansa go out and spend a day with Prince Joffrey, her betrothed, and who she has a severe, severe crush on. Uh, Crushing on him hard. So they go and spend uh, what she feels is a fantastic day together, riding horses and getting people to feed him just because Joffrey's the prince. And they're having just a great time until they hear some noise coming from uh, beyond some brush. They go and look, and there by the river uh, is Arya and her little buddy named Micah, who is a butcher's son, who happens to be kind of in the caravan traveling back to King's Landing. They're practicing fighting with some wooden swords. Joffrey gets uh, a little bit bullyish, or maybe just his true character just comes out, and he starts challenging micah to fight him and joffrey even whips out his castle forged sword that he calls king's tooth and just starts kind of bullying the kid just being a real jerk and everything Arya gets involved and before you know it nemeria Arya's dire wolf attacks joffrey gives him a nice set of bite marks on his arm uh, before they get him to get her off of him and send and they all run away kind of Uh, Micah, Arya and the wolf leaving Sansa and Joffrey Sansa's all worried about Joffrey uh, tries to comfort him at which point he lashes out at her says some pretty rude stuff and that ends the chapter so we've got just a a fantastic look into the lives of some of these characters and the first one that I think we need to talk about is is little old Joffrey
2: so Actually, you just had a really good slip to start a conversation about Joffrey. Uh, you said his sword is named King's Tooth. It's actually called Lion's Tooth. You'd Excuse think me. that... No, but here's the thing. Yeah. You'd think that the the prince would name his sword um, King's Tooth, him him being you know an extension of his father's throne. But no, he calls it Lion's Tooth after his mother's side of the family. So... Good, good slip there, what very insightful, it,
1: what if he called it stag's tooth?
2: That would have been even better that would have been <laughs> even even more uh fitting uh considering his his place within the family, but your point it's a little, very well taken, yes. yeah, and uh, yeah, what a little asshole, holy cow, in every interaction he has, he is fake very self-serving. And you were trying to get to a point and I totally interrupted you. So I'm going to just hand it off back to you, Matt Thacker.
1: I was not. I don't have very many points to make ever. Uh, (laughs) I I think you've described Joffrey well, and and it's possible to describe Joffrey in just a few words because he is just a little D-bag. That's just what he is. I thought it was interesting that he kind of has to be goaded by his mother or somebody in just about every situation. Even when Sansa was getting kind of bullied a little bit by the Hound and everything and was getting a little scared, uh, Cersei had to like say, Joffrey, Joffrey, go help her, go help her. And then he kind of did it, and it seemed like he did it reluctantly. And, but, and he seemed a little reserved almost that whole time, even though you could see the the, the dickiness in him manifesting itself. But where he really seemed to open up And just, you know, be himself and blossom as Joffrey was when he was bullying someone. Isn't that interesting? Like when he was getting up in Micah's face, he was a completely different person. He wasn't needing to be directed by his mother or anything like that. He was just himself and he was getting in his face and yelling at him and just being a jerk. And it's funny that Joffrey's essence comes from being just a jerk. It's uh, I can't I can't give him any sort of credit.
2: Yeah, he was the most passionate and focused too when he was cutting Micah's cheek, like like where you love pain or inflicting pain. A
0: masochist. Yeah, there we go. There's no reason that I know that word. <laughs> <I
2: promise. laughs> that was really quick. You knew exactly what I was talking
0: about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just feel like this guy. He just he has no he has he has no concept of how to emote things honestly I I think you said it a little bit with the you know, he needs to be propped forward uh, you know, before he does anything um, you know, the bullying aside which, you know, if you think about it bullying is kind of one of the easiest it's it's one of the easiest default emotions to, you know to, to get behind, it's just I'm going to overpower you, right somebody that's clearly in a, you know, in a position that is weaker than his and just take advantage and to me, that's 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 Joffrey in a nutshell. He's just going to take advantage of everything he can. You know, he's got so much advantage because of who his family is. But I will say this: I, I wonder how much you know. We see we see in this in 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 one of the later chapters in this uh, in this episode how much control Cersei has, and I just wonder how much of that is just directly from her being so controlling. Like, of course he has to be propped up and sent forward. Like, go help her. Like, she's controlling every aspect of his life. There's no. There's one reason why it's called Lion's Tooth instead of King's Tooth. It's Cersei. She's, like, a controlling bitch. And, you know, not that the kid has a generous or nice or, you know, noble bone in his body maybe, but I blame Cersei too.
1: We haven't seen a lot of interaction yet, but I get the feeling, especially from Eddard's chapter that we're going to talk about next, that, uh... He doesn't have a very involved relationship with his father either. Yeah, there's just Cersei.
2: Also, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of um, this chapter summary, this is the first look that we have at Sansa, and it is an interesting one. We've only ever seen her really from uh, Arya's perspective, uh, Arya's perspective. And I felt, even though Sansa is obviously a 13-year-old girl, and kudos to George for writing her... So accurately, certainly I can relate with some of these feelings of frustration when things don't go her way, when people aren't proper, when you know the, the people around you and the world isn't behaving like a, a fairy tale, why that would be upsetting. He did a really good job of, of uh, really helping us to relate to some of Sansa's whininess. Uh, yeah. hard to say hard hard to say how how um, you would describe it without uh, forgetting that she is basically a princess and and has some expectations. Yeah. but uh, whatever the case, also a very interesting uh, look at how her wolf um, lady reflects her. so very proper, very polite, very well behaved.
1: Yeah, and she- also Arya's uh, dire wolf too and how she reflects her. Um, I thought it was a tad ironic that Nymeria refused to submit to a good brushing to get all the mud and stuff out of her, and that good brushing to make her look prim and proper again was being delivered by Arya, <laughs> the one who, <laughs> who, who who herself does never submit to any sort of authority or being proper. That we are starting to see these relationships with these wolves, and it's really interesting.
0: We mentioned that this is uh, our first look at at Sansa and then and then Brooke you said, Well, really, you know, we've had some brief looks at, at her through other people's eyes, specifically Arya's. And one of the things that I found interesting, you know, we talked a lot about perspective and whose you know, whose point of view we're looking at in the last episode, uh Danny's wedding and stuff. But what's interesting about this is yes, we've been given a view of this character in Arya's chapters and seen her side of, you know, how how Arya views her sister. What we see here is Especially at the beginning confirmation of what Arya saw, right? You don't get some contradicting point of view that that disputes what Arya saw. You saw you see confirmation of of exactly what Arya you know perceived. Yeah, that's
1: true, and it's that's very it's pretty accurate. Yep,
0: it's and that, that yeah yeah, it's interesting to me. But uh, I wanted to point out about Joff too. <laughs> you know, in in Mallrats there's a there's a, a scene uh, they're doing a game show. Uh, Matt and I are big Kevin Smith fans they're they're doing a, a game show in this this movie called Mallrats by Kevin Smith and the guy is, is asked to describe his his per, the date that he's going to take this girl on if if she picks him and it's you know this perfectly cheesy date of you know all these things that that she would like to do i'm going to take you shopping at the stores you'd like to shop at and dinner at the cheese house which you can only imagine is this uh, you know upscale wine and dine kind of place but Joffrey doesn't do any of that Joffrey takes a ride and they're going to track a shadow cat there. You know, it's this it's it's what Joffrey wants to do. I just wanted to point out just he's he's really just thinking of himself almost the whole time. Good and
2: comparison. Maybe just
1: trying to just trying to impress her too, you know, true. Yeah. I can I can track a shadow cat, which, again, is very self-serving. So it's to your point. Yeah, um, he
2: definitely doesn't have the same like infatuation with Sansa as she does with him.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of reciprocation, is there?
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Also, on, actually... the, on the riding thing,
0: <laughs> Sansa spends a, a good portion of, of, of the beginning of this chapter berating Arya about riding with the column and going out and finding wild flowers and, you know, hunting lizard lions and, you know, all this all this stuff that is doing instead of being a proper girl. And in that, she includes, oh, I hate riding! You get all sweaty and friction of, you know, sitting on the horse and it makes you sore and And then Joffrey mentions riding. She's like, oh, I love riding.
2: It's the whipping.
1: uh, She's whipped.
2: Yeah. Young young love slash infatuation.
1: Uh,
2: Well, um, Sansa's chapter actually flows pretty well into Eddard's chapter. We don't like skip around timelines or geographical areas. So, Scott, do you want to get into that?
0: So yeah, you're right. It kind of goes right into it. You know, at the at the end of at the end of Sansa's chapter, Arya has run off. Uh, She one thing um, I don't think you mentioned, Matt, that before she runs off, she actually throws Lions Tooth into uh, into the river. (laughs) Um, Yes, thank you for bringing that up. And she so then she she runs off with Nymeria. Uh, They disappear into the forest. And the the next thing we see is Eddard pacing around, weary because they've been looking for four days for Arya and, and Micah, who, who, you know, ran off too. And what Ned is told is that they, f- they finally found her. Uh, and it was one of Ned's men, Jory, that, that found her. But upon bringing her back to her camp, they took, her, they, they took Arya directly back to the king. You learn that for this search, the whole party, uh, all the travelers, have holed up at uh, Sir Raymond Derry's holdfast, he's a a former Targ supporter in the war uh, in Robert's rebellion so an enemy uh to Robert's cause at the time i mean he's he's in line now he's not directly in rebellion but it's an it's an uneasy atmosphere for sure he had brothers killed in that war and um you know it's it's not it's not the best situation it kind of puts a, a little more intensity around the whole scene but uh so Eddard rushes over to uh to the king, uh, where Arya is, asks for Sansa to be sent there as well, um, so that she can she can be there and, and be with Arya and, and, and himself. And he gets into the room and it's he calls it a room full of angry eyes. He doesn't have a whole lot of support in that room, it's a lot of Lannisters and, and King's men. So he kind of feels uh feels a little pressure. Robert Triple B apologizes for not having Arya sent directly to him, but says that he wanted to sort out the business quickly. Um there's a dispute about what happened. Uh, at the Trident with Lion's Tooth and Joffrey being bitten and and how that went down and and the details. Um, So there's a little spat about it. They decide to let Arya tell her side, Joffrey his. They completely contradict each other um, about who the aggressors were and and why why it escalated. Um, And Ned knows that Sansa gave him a version of the story uh, the night it happened. And so that's one of the reasons he sent for her. So he gives her the opportunity to clear up the discrepancy, and Sansa just fucking chokes. Um, she she says, I don't remember it all happened so fast. Arya loses it, flies off the handle, and, and uh, briefly attacks Sansa. Robert doesn't know what to do. Triple B throws his hands in the air. He's like, all right, I right, two kids telling different stories. I don't know what to do. I'll punish my son, you punish your daughter, and let that be the end of it. But Cersei is KG. And Circe says, what about the wolf? We can try the wolf. And Robert says, well, there is no wolf. You know, Nymeria ran off. We, we don't have her. What do, you, what do you want me to do? And she's like, well, we have, we have a different wolf. We can punish that one. Everyone kind of freaks out <laughs> uh, on the Stark side. Like, no, you can't, you know, Lady had nothing to do with it. You can't punish Lady. And Robert, in the end, just says, yep, okay. Let's be, that'll be the end of it. Let's uh, let's have Lady uh, put to the death. Uh, in place of Nymeria, uh, the girls cry. Um, Ned decides that um, he will do the deed himself, uh, echoing his uh, you know execution strategy of you know if, if you're going to execute someone, you should swing the sword yourself, and and saying also that uh, she's from the north and she deserves better. So he does it and has the body shipped back to Winterfell. <clears throat> and uh, at the very end of the chapter, the Hound shows up and he has a a big bulging sack on the back of his horse. He says that he has his he has Ned's daughter's pet, uh, at which Ned is terrified, thinking they found and killed Nymeria, and it is Micah, the butcher's boy, who has been cleaved in half, uh, and that is the end of the chapter. So uh, some interesting stuff in this. I, I think the I think the key the key moment in this in this chapter is Sansa's choke job. <laughs> it really sets sets a. It really sets in motion some things, you know, for the relationships of some of these characters in the future. Uh, You know, she has here a chance to set things right, to tell the truth. Doing so would certainly cost her uh, in her relationship with Joffrey, who she's supposed to wed. Uh, We've already seen at the end of the last chapter, her own point of view, that Joffrey is taking this thing hard. And that has uh, colored his relationship with, with Sansa already. And so... You know she's in a she's in a bit of a tough spot. She basically just lies and says she doesn't know. You know it's uh, I don't know what you guys thought, but when that when I read that the first time, I was just like, "You've got to be kidding me!"
1: Yeah, it's pretty frustrating.
2: Well, she she pays for it almost immediately. She in does these uh-huh. hindsight, right? She does. Yeah,
1: I, I want to. And I pointed this out uh, as I was reading, but I want to, the, the mad in me wants to give her a little credit. And I say that because I, I tend to give people a lot of credit, sometimes to my detriment. I, I can't help but wonder, Sansa's pretty put together. We saw that uh, when she was talking to the three new guys, Selmy and, and Baratheon and stuff. She actually, despite the fact that she was scared, was able to have a very cordial and polite conversation that reminded me a lot of Catelyn. And... I I, want to give her maybe a little bit of credit here and think about and wonder if she thought, you know, this is the guy I'm going to marry. I'm going to have to rule a kingdom with him and be married to him forever. And he's in a room filled with Lannisters, filled with other knights, filled with Starks, filled with uh, all sorts of people that he's going to be ruling over. If I make him look like a little crybaby right now, How's that going to play out for me and for him in the future when we're ruling King's Landing together? And I wonder if she's trying to get started off on the right foot with Joffrey, uh, but the, and and just kind of feigning ignorance or or forgetting was the best way that she knew how. I don't know. Is that giving her too much credit?
0: Maybe. I, I think there's some of that in there. I, I think I think she's traumatized, and it's it's more it's it's less planned. Uh, you know, and cleverly executed than it is f- fainting from exhaustion and fear of of what to do to me. So I think it's too much credit. But I th- I think you have the motivations right. I think she's terrified of what's going to happen if she does, if she does turn on him and and tell the truth. Uh, I I, I think it's worse than than you. I, I think if she did that, the marriage would be off. I think I think Joffrey would have. Mm -hmm. would have never you know he would have fought back and seriously would have you know no way we're doing this and i I think it would have put a strain a big enough strain on the relationship that it would have been ended
1: that's an interesting point what would have happened if it would have gone the other way would all that have happened you know eddard goes stomping back to winterfell screw you guys
2: (laughs) that is a really good point this could have been a real turning um because eddard too Unlike Sansa, who obviously tried to walk the fence, whether you can give her credit for um, a bigger motivation than just saving her own skin in front of everybody or not, um, Ned totally called Robert out.
1: Yeah, Uh, he was pretty belligerent.
2: Yeah, and uh, between Cersei demanding wolf blood and Ned you know, putting their friendship on the line, you know, for, for, for the the feelings you have for me um, uh, telling Robert that if, if he's going to execute a wolf, he should do it himself. Like very belligerent. And, and Robert's to his credit, doesn't rise to any of that. He, I guess is benevolent when it comes to Ned and just ignores it, which is, the best thing he can do as a King because the alternatives are looking weak and, Mm -hmm. and, and rising to that bait or, you know, punishing ned but he knows he can't because he needs ned as the hand and uh, anyways had 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 you know several key decisions been different here had sansa chosen to tell the truth had um robert actually you know been the king that he he could have been had cersei had her mouth sewn shut by somebody at some point in time that would have been great Mm -hmm. i i think you're right that the the what we see in the future of these books would have been very different
0: well, and one more decision point, too. We know Eddard has summoned Sansa. He says it specifically in the chapter that he summoned her because he heard a version of this story already from Sansa's mouth. And yet when she says nothing, he doesn't prompt her. He doesn't push the envelope to hear the story. Why doesn't he do that? He also makes a choice not to push this to get the real outcome, Right. Mm. which is, I don't, I don't know. It's very interesting to me why he keeps his mouth shut.
2: Yeah. Maybe he just doesn't want to add to Sansa losing credibility. You know how like it, you, did you guys ever work customer service as as teenagers? And, (laughs) and, and the best thing you can do as a manager is just to support your people no matter what. So, Mm -hmm. well, uh,
0: I, I, I wanted to point out too, you know, Brooke. You say that she pays the price immediately, mm. and uh, oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make another Kevin Smith reference already. Uh, two, <laughs> two in the span of 30 minutes. There's this there's this great part of of Clerks. It's one of my favorite bits that Kevin Smith's ever done, where uh, the, the character Randall is talking about the second Death Star and how when it got blew when it got blown up, it never sat right with him in his conscience, uh, and it, and he figured out why. And it was because it wasn't all the way built yet. And there were all these workers and, you know, aluminum ciders and painters and decorators and all these people trying to finish the job at the Death Star that got blown up along with, you know, the the military, uh, you know, people, the, the soldiers.
1: I think the average stormtrooper knows how
0: to install a toilet main. And he said, it, you know, it just didn't sit right that there's all these innocent victims. And there's a roofer in the store listening to this conversation. And he weighs in and he says, hey, don't feel bad for them. They knew the job they were getting into when they when they took this job, and they knew the risks and Sansa is like one of those contractors, but i don't know whether she knows the stakes of the game she's playing right mm. she She goes in there and whether she's doing it with machinations like 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 Matt is suggesting or whether she's just fainting like I'm suggesting or whether it's somewhere in the middle i don't know if she realizes that you know what lady could die over this or your sister could die over this or who knows what like, does she, does she know the stake she's in now that she's out of the friendly confines of Winterfell?
2: Uh, somewhere Kevin Smith is punching air and he doesn't know why a good, uh, comparison. Yeah. She, well, this is the, the quickest lesson she could learn to reference the title of this episode. This is where the ruthlessness starts. Yeah because she's not shown any mercy uh even if it is through innocent ignorance it's just yeah thrown into the game you're and playing it's a, now
1: it's a game that's really run by the Lannisters isn't it i, I think oh. that was made that was made uh, strikingly clear through this chapter robert just wanted to get the whole thing over with i don't He just seemed like he was just he was just bored. You know, this is a guy that runs a whole kingdom. He doesn't want to sit here listening to the squabbles of two little kids. He just wants to be done with it. It should have never happened in the first place. Uh, You sense a a certain amount of embarrassment in him for the way that Joffrey acted. He knows that Joffrey was a little uh, D bag about the whole thing and all that. He just wants it over with. But Cersei pulls the strings and, and she got what she wanted in the end. Um, And it was just a small thing, just, well, to her, probably it was a small thing, just punishing uh, a couple kids, but she, uh, it's indicative of their relationship.
2: And also, it's also a good lesson for the reader too, because our world has been so focused so far on the Starks and these wolves mean so much to us, but in the bigger reality of running a kingdom, having... Sentencing one wolf to execution just to appease your your wife is not a big deal. It's like, yeah, yeah it's just another <laughs> evening of making tough decisions as a king. Like, give Whatever. her a dog; she'll feel better about it later. Yeah, and yeah. I'm going and back so to my
1: room. Bring me some alcohol. And we're I'm horrified for the night.
2: and <laughs> exactly, we're horrified and heartbroken. But in the grand scheme of things, it's it's nothing. It's nothing. And, and we and we have to learn that lesson, too. And it, it's a it's a harsh one, but it should set us up. Does it? Does it set us up? I don't know. A lot of heartbreak in this series.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I just, just want to throw it back out there. My mom taught me that honesty is the best policy. <laughs> and the Godfather taught me. But don't ever
2: take sides with anyone against the family again.
0: This chapter went a long way toward me despising Sansa. <laughs> oh, man. You
1: despise her, Scott? You actually despise her? Huh.
0: I don't know, man. It it hurts. She's like a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> I, let let, <laughs> let me put it this way. What, there was a small, small part of me that when, that when Lady died, I was like, bitch got what she deserved. Mm-hmm. A very, very small part. Most oh of you was sad, the small part was like, you know what? You had, you had power here, and you made a dumb choice, not a dumb choice. It's a, it's, you're in a difficult position, but you made the wrong choice, not being honest about what you knew, and this is, sometimes this is what happens.
2: I feel like you're in that camp of men who really dislike Skylar White, because she didn't do the things that you wanted her to do. I hate she... Skylar White. That? <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't know even that know is.
1: who skylar white is i have no
0: idea who that is
2: what? i thought you were in the breaking bad that's no, me I, no. that's matt dang yeah. it
0: no i they're sitting on my it was supposed to be my wife and my summer project was to watch that whole series and it didn't happen and then oh, having sorry.
1: a baby became your summer project Gosh.
2: babies <laughs>
1: <laughs> not making having <laughs> yes
2: thank you <laughs> Okay, never mind then. Well, okay, that's fair. You you are maybe not as forgiving as um, some. I I just attributed to just just putting a little note in the back of my brain. I said it was a
1: small part of me. A small part. (laughs) She's twelve, man. She's a kid. But I do think it's brilliant that that you know, usually and or protagonists in a story, no matter how young or how old they are. They're set up to make the correct choices, and sometimes they make a wrong choice here or there, but in the end, they always make the correct choice. Um, George R. R. Martin writes Sansa as a character that makes the choices a 12-year-old would make. It's not a 12-year-old making a choice that a 40-year-old would make, like we get in some fiction. It's a choice that an actual 12, 13, 11, however old she is, girl would make, and I think that that's uh, a great credit to his writing.
2: Very accurate, Yes. Katniss Everdeen, 16 years old or whatever, in uh, The Hunger Games. Yeah. Had she been written as a 16-year-old, that series would have been very different.
1: And I would I would contend, you're not going to like this, Brooke, but Harry Potter as well. I'm just just
2: going to say. Ah, no, no, I, I completely agree. I,
0: I, I just want to, I'm going to just read from the text real quick, because I have a problem with how much credit we're giving her for making a decision, okay? Okay.
1: I'm not okay. giving her credit. She blinked saying, at give her, her a sister,
0: break. then at the young prince. I don't know, she said tearfully, <laughs> looking as though she wanted to bolt. I don't remember. Everything happened so fast I didn't
2: see. Why is she suddenly Swedish?
0: That <laughs> was, okay. was supposed to be whiny, was not it? Swedish. But the, <laughs> the point is she didn't make a decision. She just fell apart. And may, maybe that does underscore your point. A 12-year-old girl might just fall apart.
1: Exactly. That's but, exactly my point.
0: But that wasn't like, it wasn't like a strategic decision. It was like,
2: I can't handle this. Mm. <laughs> okay. So everyone agrees, bad decision, um, terrible outcome. Yeah, Are terrible con- to- immediate
1: consequences. Yeah.
2: yeah. I- I'm just watching the clock here. Are we ready to move on? Let's go to Bran but I want to hear more of that Sansa voice later. Scott. Yeah.
1: Anytime God. we have a Sansa POV, we're going to have a little moment where Scott reads <laughs> a few passages. Just in that voice.
0: we can just stop the analysis. I'll just read the thing cover to cover on this. If you want, I can do all, I can do all my voices. Luke loves them. <laughs> I'll bet.
2: <laughs> we'll do a second podcast. That's all it is. Okay, so uh, we're moving on to Bran's third point of view chapter. Uh, this is a short and sweet one, so I'm going to keep the summary short and sweet. Basically, we enter Bran's dreams as he's lying unconscious uh, in a tower in Winterfell. He uh, that the dream is basic. He's falling from a really great height. And he can see all across uh, the Seven Kingdoms. He can see his father uh, heading uh, south towards the King's Landing. He can see his mother um, in a ship also heading in the same direction. He can see John up in the north. Um, He is probably seeing these visions as a dream, but we as readers know that he is actually, you know, almost like leaving his body and, and, um, And they're in the present and is able to travel metaphysically or however it's called, Um, which is interesting because he probably doesn't know that these visions are real. Uh, He is joined by a three eyed crow, so a crow with two eyes and then another eye in the middle of the crow's head, which, uh, according to Bran, has great knowledge in it. And the crow is urging him to fly instead of fall. He, he kind of back and forth with this crow in dream language. It's very difficult to read, but you get through it. In the end, the crow pecks Bran in the middle of the forehead. Um, Bran uh, actually is able to fly in his dream, and then he wakes up. And uh, he wakes up and scares the the living crap out of a serving woman who drops a bull, goes running, screaming that he is awake. He's awake. His brother Rob comes up the stairs to the tower room and finds um, Bran just kind of turns to him without any other context and says his name is Summer. The wolf's name is Summer. And that is the chapter. So some interesting, perhaps foreshadowing details in the stream that Bran has, and you can interpret them as you will. Probably the most important one is that when Bran looks north and sees his brother John at the wall, he actually looks further north over the wall into the wilds and feels a burning cold. And the crow tells him that this is important. This is this is why Bran must live. And Bran asks why. And the Crow tells him, because winter is coming. And uh actually everybody mentioned this in their notes, but does is this is this a allude to the others up in the north uh saying that they are coming? Does does Bran have an actual role um know, confronting or fighting the others? It's an it's uh an interesting vision. Again, probably Brian just thinking it's the dream. What do you guys think?
0: Well, I, I would um it's it's really difficult to get too into this without getting spoilery. Um I I would echo a little bit of what you said, Brooke, about, you know, look into this and, and read what you will. But I would I would urge people to read this chapter a second time if you only read it once. And pay attention and pay, pay attention to the words he used, and pay attention to the things he sees. Mm. It, it's 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 a deep, deep chapter, despite its its uh, you know short length. Um, That's
2: really good advice. It's better than me saying just try try to work your way through it. It's tough, but <laughs> well, because your best.
0: I mean, you you mentioned something about we as readers know that it's not a dream that he's able to leave his body metaphysically.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: certainly didn't know that the first time I read it um i i was like oh cool a dream about flying and yeah i don't want to get spoilery but, um but, <laughs> but, but yeah read it read into it what you will but there's there's a lot of good stuff in there and um i i do agree that the the biggest takeaway well well two the, two the two biggest takeaways are the looking beyond the wall um and 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 you know that fear kind of rising in him when he does that uh and you know the crow responding to it uh, and then the second thing is the naming of the wolf at the end, which which is interesting. You know that he wakes up and names the wolf immediately when he's been struggling with it for for a long time. There's something important there, and and I don't know exactly what it is. I would say one more interesting thing is we get when he's looking around the continents and everything, he also looks uh, to the east, and we don't get any detail about that. And I don't know I don't know why that is. You get you get all this detail of specific things happening and everywhere else he looks, but you only get vague references when he looks east i don't know if that means anything either
1: i wonder if it's just because it's not uh, there's nothing immediate there for him to latch on to maybe know, he saw his dad his brothers his mom and those people in in the west but not in the east but nevertheless it's something in, yeah. uh, intriguing to think about uh, i do like that the naming of the wolf was in direct antithesis to what kind of affected him most in that whole vision, which was looking beyond the wall in that burning cold uh, with winter is coming. And so in direct opposition to winter, he names his wolf summer.
2: Yeah. You'd almost think it would make more sense if he had named the wolf winter or, or, (laughs) or, um, like, uh, Rob's wolf gray wind, uh, something to do with the North, but, Mm -hmm. uh, and keep in mind, Bran has only ever known Summer too, so it's almost like it, it, it shouldn't. He shouldn't be so aware of it. If it's all you ever know, you're going to take that for granted. He mm-hmm. is. He is aware.
1: The, I don't know um, how much more we can talk about this chapter.
2: Yeah,
0: I, just, I, was, just, <laughs> I was just reviewing notes. Uh, two maybe specific things that he sees while he's looking that I'll bring up. Just to, otherwise, we can make this quick. The, he he describes some of the people in Edard's camp. And one of them is called the Stoneclad Giant. Do you guys know who they're referring to? Who Brand's seeing there? Is that Illin? Oh,
2: the one with, where he lists the visor and it's just blood and ash underneath. Yes, yes. I wasn't sure either.
1: I thought about it. I think it's a metaphor. I, I agree. I think it's it's something to do with something bad's going to happen.
0: Interesting. I don't want to um, say it's Robert. Oh, you want to um, say it's Robert? That's interesting. Yeah. It's 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 also it's. One of the things that's interesting about what he's seeing, and I'll get to a specific example in a second, is he's seeing very specific things that we know we've just read are happening, right? Mm-hmm. They are happening. He's seeing them and they're it's 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 almost more of a dream. It's like he's he's seeing them, right, as as they happen. But it also is mixed with this stuff that mm-hmm. there's clearly metaphor, right? And mm-hmm. that's a little weird, right? Usually your dreams are just all, you know, crazy out in La La Land. But or or things that you've experienced yourself, obviously that you're reminded of. But this is this is a little a little mix. It's also one of the things that he 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 notes is Arya's secrets in her heart, which which mm. means he isn't just seeing what's happening; he's actually perceiving something that one of his siblings is feeling, or 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 thinking, which is beyond a dream. So there's definitely stuff going on.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um he uh and I wonder if that's why it kind of hurts so bad when the when the crow started pecking at his forehead because he's he he's the crow's implying that Bran doesn't quite have that wealth of knowledge symbolized by the third eye that the crow has and it's going to take a little bit of work maybe to learn that so he's come he, he's he's come a, a a way already he can perceive some of what are what's going on with aria he can see other things but other stuff doesn't quite make sense to him yet and that's where that i think that third eye is going to come in and i think the pain in his forehead uh alludes to the fact that it's not going to be easy
0: okay i know i said yeah. that was the last thing but there's one more <laughs> sorry Uh, the repression of the memory. So, so he has this, uh, this vision of, uh, the blonde, uh, haired person or whatever.
2: All right. The things I do for love.
0: And yes. And the crow says, don't think about that right now. You can't use it. Right. That's interesting.
2: Mm hmm.
1: Ignore the past. Move forward. Fly.
2: So readers take scads. Good advice. Reread this chapter a couple of times. Um, Definitely make your own interpretations. And uh, let's let's move on to Catelyn's chapter. Matt?
1: Let's. So Catelyn's on her way to King's Landing in the company of Sir Roderick Cassell. They uh, hop a ship and are going to go by boat to try to get there ahead of Ned, head him off and, and warn him of what they think is going on in terms of uh, Starks having assassins sent against them and such. Uh, And the whole Lannister blade thing. So they end up arriving fairly quickly. They um, uh, on a voyage with some uh, traders, I believe it is from the east and they're renowned for their sailing. And so they are able to arrive quite quickly. So Catelyn arrives, she notices all of the different Targaryen history that's there, uh, a beautiful sept, which is kind of like a cathedral, a place called the Dragon Pit, and of course the Red Keep, which is kind of the uh, where the king hangs out. So she gets there, and, and Sir Roderick says he's going to go find the man-at-arms uh, who works for the king and talk to him about the the knife, because if anyone would know who the, the dagger belongs to that was... Used in the in Brand's assassination attempt, it would probably be this guy. So Sir Roderick goes to find him, and Kat hangs out at an inn. Uh, but it turns out someone knew she was there, and so they came and they uh, some men from the from the uh, local police force essentially came and picked her up and took her to the palace where she runs into an old friend of hers, Peter Baelish, otherwise known as Littlefinger, who she grew up with in River Run. He was a ward to Catelyn's father, and so they grew up together, and he's now risen to a sort of prominence in the government of Westeros as the Master of Coin, meaning he's in charge of the kingdom's finances. She talks to him, and he's very nice to her, and very apologetic about them coming over to where she was staying at the inn, and Calling her off to King's Landing and everything. Then she meets another guy named Varys, and Varys is this cute little dude. He's this bald guy with no hair. Cute little dude. <laughs> he's he's all giggly wow. and stuff like that. And turns out he's what's called the Master of Whisperers, uh, meaning that he his whole job is just to know all of the secrets and know basically know everything that's going on in the kingdom, both. Uh, at surface level and below the surface too. He just is, uh, it's his job to know everything. And, um, somehow he knows that she has the dagger, even though they haven't talked about it to anybody yet. And, uh, they start talking about it and the chapter ends with Peter Baelish saying that the dagger had belonged to him, (gasps) but even more that he had lost the dagger in a bet. And the person he lost the bet to was Tyrion Lannister.
0: Who bet against his own brother in the...
1: Yes, in a a jousting tournament, right?
2: The mystery deepens.
1: It does. Uh, I think probably the most important thing about this chapter, at least the part that stood out to me, was just getting to know a couple of these new characters. You've got Littlefinger and you've got Varus. Interesting characters. Do you, you guys see them as major players? Who are they? You know
0: how are they gonna pan out? So so we've spent most of our time in Winterfell, right? Or, or on the road to Winterfell. We're now introduced to a new arena, and there are new players in the arena, and these are the first two we get to meet. We don't know uh how big of players they are. Uh the master of uh of whispers certainly sounds important, certainly sounds like he knows a lot of stuff. Uh, I was impressed by him uh initially um you know Peter seems kind of like a little conniving kind of uh you know self serving obsequious kind of little guy i don't know i clearly obsessed with with uh with, with Catlin and that history uh i didn't i didn't think too much of him but you know if they're if they're surviving in this in this in this uh, arena then they're players
2: so, certainly not the Sorry, go ahead.
1: Go, you go. I want you to ah. go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go. Uh they're not what I was expecting. You know, that they obviously have huge roles in the in the running of the kingdom, but neither are, are presented to us with the sort of ceremony that we've seen for for example the other uh council oh, members like Darsan yeah. Salmi and and Renley who we get great um really detailed not exotic, was the word I'm thinking of. Just uh they, they they're larger than life. True we're also seeing them from Sans's perspective, but uh and and Catelyn knows and has a has a history with Peter. I, I love that she she Ooh. brings up for us the the fact that Peter Challenged her betrothed uh, at the time, uh, Brendan Stark, when Brendan was 20 and Peter was 15, probably against Catelyn's wishes. She probably wasn't like, oh, oh, Peter, (laughs) please please fight for my hand. I'd, (laughs) I'd much rather have you. And he's a uh, squirrely
1: little sucker too. Yeah.
2: I'm sure the, the nickname Littlefinger, which uh not really a spoil um uh, a spoiler is because um, he hails from the region in the Seven Kingdoms called the Fingers, which are like a sort of like fjords of land out into the sea. And he got the nickname Littlefinger, perhaps because he was son of the Lord of the Fingers, but also probably because of his stature it's it's an apt nickname and certainly sets the tone um for how we should perceive him and nickname and, he owns up to right he he, he uses it himself and yeah. right? he kind of loves
0: it he's like oh, it's i'm glad you pointed that out in your notes yeah. it's
2: it's it's just like how um Tyrion lannister embraces the nickname the mm-hmm. imp and how he yeah. urges john to embrace his identity as a bastard um Peters owns Littlefinger. He is the master of coin for the entire kingdom. He's done well for himself.
1: Yeah, for a guy who's come from and and i believe it's little finger because he's from the smallest of those fingers so oh like is the, it the, the oh, smallest sorry. yeah little place in that in the finger so no it's to your point that he's he's come from essentially nothing and mm-hmm. he's he's managed to get to a, a very high level in the kingdom so there's obviously something to him but i love how you pointed out that uh that their introduction is decidedly different from some of the other yeah. guys that we've met they're kind of they kind of just sneak in and um really kind of sly and stuff and slithery. It's not
0: grand or anything. It's very backdoorsy. You're right. We get, we get grandiose introductions. They're in their armor and glowing descriptions. You're right. It's from, from POV, but we get grandiose introductions to these other characters. This is very backdoorsy. They summon, they summon her behind closed doors. You know, it's, it seems kind of secret, um, kind of exchange of information, kind of who knows what. Yeah. It's very almost, you know, kind of clandestine kind of a, kind of a meeting. Uh, instead mm. of out in the open and and, and brazen. Uh, I, I do, though, I wanted to say I, I, I'm with Brooke, Matt. I, I thought it was just because he was a tiny guy and he was from the fingers. Um, we'll have to we'll have to do some research on that
1: one. I don't know, I Matt. Matt's... Do research. You'll find it. It's there.
0: I will
2: find yeah, it. Yeah, I can't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm really afraid I'm going to use the term backdoorsy out of like... in Incorrectly. (laughs) I don't know what that says about your personal life,
0: Brooke, but (laughs) just be wary, I guess.
2: It's going to just be stuck in the front of my brain. I'm going to blurt it out like the president of the company or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He will probably appreciate it.
2: Yeah, he would. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. so um, I just wanted to point out, too, uh, I, I do this. If you guys hate hearing this stuff, Send me an email and tell me to are leave you, alone the history are, thing.
2: History lesson, we love it. No, yeah. it's great. It deserves its own theme music too, <laughs> Professor
0: so, Scott. <laughs> so they they meant that you hear this all the time about you know the Targs took over 300 years ago and that's when King's Landing was built. Um, and we'll we'll spare details about how long it would take to actually build a city like this to get it to that point, but uh, using especially with the technology they had. But um, it's not that old. You know, King's Landing is as old as Albuquerque albuquerque new mexico which you know you might not know much that about that but you know it's part of the west the west was developed after the east in the u.s um and it's just not that old of a city um you know it's certainly not as old as anything in europe um Mm. you know so just it it george doesn't make it sound like a modern city or anything like that but just keep in mind that it's newer than the others um you know it doesn't have the rich sense of history um you might get a sense when you meet its people that it's, it's kind of more of a, a melting pot where people are just kind of thrown together rather than a a sense of a place with its own history. Just
2: keep that in mind. When Catlin was describing it, it kind of felt like she was giving it a a new money kind of nose tilt. Yeah. Yeah. Albuquerque. Famous for Walter White. There we go. That's all I know about it. Yeah. I didn't even do that intentionally.
1: Well, Uh. thank you for doing it anyways. Have we right. exhausted cat. <laughs>
2: Anything well, else that we want to discuss? Well, we didn't, we didn't
0: talk too much about our stunning uh, understanding that Tyrion owns the Blade. Do we want to talk about that?
1: <sighs>
0: Here, here's what I'll say.
1: What's there to Tyrion, say about it?
0: Well, be, because Tyrion... We, we talked in, in one of our previous episodes about how Tyrion skillfully navigated the waters of trying to get information out of this whole event uh, of, of Bran being thrown out the window. And um you know trying to trying to navigate through that to gain information and yet here he is you know and, and he seemed very genuine and in, in you know kind of hoping that the boy would wake up and here we learn that it's his knife that was sent to kill the kid so uh, he's either a very good actor in this in this game you know a chess piece to be noted um you know or there's something else going on
1: yeah well, and that's true he did have me deceived You know, as the reader with a a certain amount of all knowing uh, of this story, you know, just because we're we're seeing it from a different perspective. So we sometimes feel like we know the characters better than they might know themselves in some situations. Uh, He had me fooled. So I don't think it was him.
2: Yeah, I think it's just indicative that this this whole thing goes deeper, that Catelyn is is in for a lot more sleuthing.
1: Yeah. It definitely gets you excited for the next Catlin chapter.
2: Take the mm-hmm. red pill. All right, let's uh, let's hear about John up on the wall.
0: All right, so uh, we get uh, we get a, another look at John. He is at the wall, and he is training in the yard with with his black brothers, the other members of the Night's Watch, and uh, being being instructed by. Alistair or Thorne, um, another member of the, of the Night's Watch, who seems to t- detest all of them. Um, John beats them up pretty good. Uh, he's clearly uh, faster, better trained, you know knows, knows how to fight better than any of these guys and he beats them up pretty good. and uh, you get the sense that it's not a new occurrence. He's been beating them up for days and the, the other boys are the other men boys are frustrated by it. Um, even, even the commander Thorne seems kind of frustrated by it. Um, you know, even picking on John for winning (laughs) kind of, um, you know, and they break and, and they go to, to return all their gear, uh, to the armory. And you just get a look into John's brain and he's, he's very disillusioned by the whole experience. He feels betrayed by his uncle and his father for not telling him what the Night's Watch really was, you know, just like anyone disillusioned, he tries to remember some of the good times, uh, you know that he has, and you know wishes that Arya were here so we could ruffle her hair. And um, and then he's interrupted by his black brothers, and they're gonna they're gonna fight him. <laughs> they surround him four four or five to one, uh, and they start to attack, and he fights back. Um, I think breaks somebody's nose or, or something. Uh, and then that scuffle gets interrupted by Donal Noy, um, an awesome character in this series. Uh, I don't care if I'm spoiling it or not, but he's cool. He is a blacksmith. Uh, he's lived a a long life as a, a blacksmith for a blacksmith of the stars, if you will. He's uh <laughs> was was associated with uh, with Triple B's brother, Stannis, who we have yet yet to meet. Um, but was supposedly supposedly built the war hammer that caved in Rhaegar Targaryen's chest. at The Trident. He lost uh, an arm in battle, and uh, now. Uh, w- was sent to the wall after that when he couldn 't really perform uh, in his usual role, so he uh, he gets rid of everybody and sits down John and tries to teach him a few things about the wall you know that this is where you deal with the truth of of life and and who everyone is there 's no running from problems um, you 've got to confront everything John gets all whiny tells tells Donald Noy that he hates it here and Noy kind of flips the conversation on its ear and he says john you 're a bully. And John is just flabbergasted by this. John is used to being the bastard, the one that gets bullied, the one that has to take it from everyone else. And mm-hmm. Noy says, no, you know what? You've had advantages in your life that none of these kids have had, and you are shaming them every time in the yard when you beat them this way. And you have a choice. You can continue to do that and risk your life because they won't take it forever before you know, they, uh, they put a knife to your throat and kill you. Or you can help them be better and embrace this brotherhood that you're here for. You know, try, try, to, try to make the best of it and help these people out, because they're your family now. And John kind of, I think he takes it to heart, right? And um, he walks out, and he's, you know, he doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, but he, I think he takes the lesson to heart. And he, ta- he walks out into the yard, and then we get our first view of the wall, now, the largest structure built by man, uh, a wonder. Um, there's a beautiful piece of writing in there where he says, if it fell, the world would fall with it. And, uh, I think, uh, let's see after the, so as he's, as he's looking at the wall, he, uh, Tyrion comes up beside him. He says, you want to know what's on the other side, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of have a little conversation, but then they go to the mess hall to get a meal together that gets interrupted by, Oh, Oh, Benjen is noted as being gone for two weeks. Uh, at least, uh, he's been gone a long time. It's been two weeks since John's name day and he was supposed to be back by then. Um, but during the meal where they're sitting down, uh, John gets interrupted. Uh, Alistair Thorne comes to say that the Lord Commander needs to see him, so John runs off. It ends up being a letter indicating that Bran has woken up, information that we as a reader already have, uh, but that he's paralyzed. You don't know how he's going to react, but John's just overjoyed that he woke up. Um, he's paralyzed, but he's he's alive and he's going to live. Um, so he's just overjoyed. He runs back to the mess hall. He lifts up Tyrion in celebration, explains that he's going to live. He offers to help Gren, one of, the, one of the black brothers in the yard that he was embarrassing earlier, and says, hey, I'll help you be better. And then he challenges Thorne, who kind of throws a dig at him. He, he challenges him and uh, cracks Wise back at him. And you just get the sense that Jon is now, through this news, emboldened to you know, seize, seize a, a, a good place within the Night's Watch and really rise up and make the best of the situation. Um, and that's kind of what you're left with at the end of this chapter.
2: Uh, I was so excited to get into uh, this chapter because I love the whole, uh, I don't know, setup of the Night's Watch. And seen from John's eyes, it's a little bit negative, um, at least at first here. But uh, fascinating that these guys have been tasked with... Uh, maintaining and 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 watching this wall like it's it's so out there this this whole concept that that uh a wall made of ice is is and and this has been visited in past chapters it's been 800 years since um you know an other has been seen by anybody down in the south um but these guys are, are well aware of of Well, hold on. You know what? I take that back. Not everybody is well aware of the potential danger out there besides the wildlings, because uh, in the prologue, um, um, it was still sort of like uh, an old wives tale that you should still heed because the evidence is right there. But Mm -hmm. uh, it's got to be so thankless and and lonely. And I think this is from your notes, Scott, but only 13, three of the 19 castles along the wall are still occupied. So at one point in time, like this wall was really well fortified and manned. Um, it was 8,000 years, not 800 years. Sorry. Um, now only three of the castles are occupied two at the, either of the far ends. And then one in the middle, it's, it's insane. It's, it's, it's a, a completely impossible job. It's like, you know, that, 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 metaphor it's like eating an elephant with a spoon like how do you do it yeah
0: um you know the the three of 19 castles thing and and how many drawing from last episode's discussion about how big this area is i didn't i didn't bother trying to get a a real reading and and measure and, and try to see how many miles it was but based on last chapter when i did do some of that measuring uh i would guess that the wall is about 400 miles wide um that may be wrong. I'll go look and, and update next episode maybe, but um four hundred miles wide is an incredible distance to try to measure when with one castle in the middle. Like you couldn't do it. Like mm-hmm. I I don't if, if if their goal is to monitor the wall and make sure no shenanigans are happening, they can't do it with one castle across four hundred miles. Like it's just not gonna happen.
1: Right. And I think that just goes to show what the opinion outside of the wall is of the wall and the night's watch. Uh, I think Westeros as a whole has become a little bit, um, I don't want to say negative or pessimistic, but maybe just apathetic about any sort of threat that lies beyond the wall. And I don't know what kind of funding they receive from the government to maintain the wall. uh, But it seems like that it's taken quite a low priority um, it, just because they haven't seen any real threats from it in how many thousands of years. Now, obviously, the Night's Watch sees those ki- types of threats all the time with wildlings and stuff like that, but no one else does. And so to everyone else in Westeros, the Night's Watch is, is really just a place to send convicts just to get them out of their hair. I think it's it's not held in esteem. It's it's not held as anything really important. It's just a repository for former convicts, you know, and and the, that's too bad because we see it for kind of what it really is and, and the role that it does play.
0: That's an interesting point, Matt. But it, it makes me wonder because a, a lot of the beginning of this chapter is and and even the last one where uh, John and Tyrion were on the road, and um, you know Tyrion was kind of teasing John about the reality of the Night's Watch if 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 that's the way everyone feels about the night's watch, then why is John surprised? This is something that that, 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 that I don't get in the writing here with with John the, the evolution of this storyline is like he shouldn't be surprised by this he He should know the score of what this is like and who the people are and you know that it is where convicts go and if that's the reality, then why is he
2: surprised? I think that was Benjen's doing
1: I think so too.
2: Like, whenever he came down to visit, he, he probably wasn't telling him about, you know, how, how they struggled to feed all of these dudes with poor attitudes and terrible pasts, probably tried to uh, play it up like it was uh, that, more honorable than it is. That's
1: interesting. And that's Benjamin's personality, benefit, too.
0: Or is he trying yeah. to get John up to the wall, do you think?
2: Oh, I don't know. yeah, maybe. He was the one who first suggested it. Yep.
0: And, oh. and, but he does He does also say you don't want to do it when John asks. You think that was a bit of a, no, you don't want to do that. Uh, yeah,
2: I know he was totally playing to a 14-year-old. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. well, just to a kid in general, that's how we yeah. get our children to eat is we say, don't you eat those potatoes. Yeah. And the Nothing first thing tastes they do, better yeah.
2: than defying authority.
1: <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, It's also just a credit to Benjen's personality and demeanor and everything, which is in stark contrast. Oh, see what I did there? Stark contrast. To oh, It seems like good. everyone else on the wall. Hey, you shut it. <laughs> I told you no puns. That was a good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just don't get why he would do it, right? And maybe that's a question better answered later. Uh, maybe he knows something we don't. I don't know, but... It seems why like he a would d- why he would go to the wall? It seems like a dick thing to mislead your nephew, oh, even if he's a bastard, mm-hmm. and not tell him the truth about some place that's shitty. In order to you know, like, <laughs> why would he do that? It seems like a maybe, dick move.
1: Maybe he thought anywhere would, was better than in Winterfell with Catelyn. I don't know, and also, maybe he wasn't trying to do that. We could be wrong.
2: Also, if you're if you're stuck in a city shitty situation. You're not going to... You're going to do everything you can to make it better. And he obviously recognized that John would be a good addition to the wall, even if John's first first impressions were going to be not good.
1: We need him.
0: I promise this is not spoilery because I don't know anything (laughs) about this, but I think there's got to be something more to it than that. Anyway. Uh,
2: Maybe. Maybe. Certainly everything happens for a reason in this this series.
0: We've spent enough time on it. Let's move on. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. I'm just really big bullheaded about this point.
2: Okay, let's move on to where we can be spoilery. Readers, thank you so much for joining us this episode. Uh, We really appreciate it. Again, check us out at DavosFingers.com. We have many ways to share share the love. And also, if you want to get a hold of us and uh, ask us any questions or bring up any topics that you want to hear about, please let us know. Now it is time for Davos After Dark.
1: Do you mind if I just announce real quick the readings for next time?
2: Oh yeah, you know what? Yeah. That would really help. Thanks,
1: Matt. <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. Uh, so we're just—they you know, can figure it out themselves usually because we're just reading five chapters every time. But yeah. uh, so for next time, we've got Edard's fourth chapter, Tyrion's third, Arya's second. Uh, we get back to Daenerys with her third chapter, and then we get Bran—the uh, first post-wake-up Bran chapter. So, and you can always up, find that
0: list on our on our Tumblr site. Davos after dark.
2: Cue the theme music and go. Davos after
0: dark. Oh, so much. Oh boy.
2: <laughs> can we can we just while we're still on the topic discuss perhaps John's ultimate role on the on the wall? Scott, you said you don't know anything, but we do know something. John becomes the the actual like uh, oh, what is the role the the, the head knight's Watch guy. Mm-hmm.
1: The Lord Commander. Lord
2: Commander. Lord He'll... Commander. But Benjamin he... didn't know that would happen.
1: Benjamin seemed to have a pretty good handle on John, maybe more than anybody else. I don't yeah. know. If and then he, he would become Lord Commander, but
2: conveniently disappears. Yeah. I'm going deeper than that even.
1: Cold hands.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going I'm going with something along the lines of Benjamin knows something about John's heritage or heritage person or who he's meant to be, something deeper.
2: Oh, you think he knows the oh, I don't he know. Knows the secret. I just I, I just I can't does. I
0: can't reconcile his behavior towards John if he really unless he just doesn't like him. I can't reconcile the behavior he's giving him unless he knows that there's some specific reason that John needs to be at the wall. And it's got to be bigger dreams. than he could be a good leader someday. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like
2: Was that your impression of me?
0: Uh, I don't know.
2: Maybe <laughs> the voice was it way was. up. What is wrong with <laughs> At you? At least I didn't turn it Swedish. That's <laughs> true. Um, yeah, no, that's you know what. Ugh, it, this is another dummy move that I never thought of it that way. Of course, it would it would make a lot of sense that if if Benjin knew John's parentage, then he would also know that he has the blood of the dragon, and that might come in handy because Benjamin knew about um. The Dragon Glass.
1: There's something about Benjen. Yes. Uh, just the way that he interacts with John, there is something different, and I thought about that too, especially in that early chapter with uh, when they first were talking about the Nights Watch. There's just something different about him.
0: Yeah, I and his
1: relationship in, with John. In
0: that, in one of the first episodes, I said, "You don't get much from Benjen. I think that's exactly what I said, and. You don't. We don't. We don't know almost anything about what motivates him. Why he's at the wall. What why did he drove go to the him. wall? Like, there's yeah. there's very little that, that we know. But there's something. He's 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 a Stark. He's not some bumbling, you know, Fredo to make another, uh, you know, <laughs> Godfather. Godfather reference. He he's he's a good dude, and he knows things. And uh, there's got to be motivation behind what he's doing.
1: He recognizes something of importance at the wall and he's going to get there and he's going to get, you know, the right people there with him uh, and what that is. I don't know. But um, you're totally right, Scott. Like there's no way that a son of a Stark, especially one as well set up as Benjen was, would just go to the wall just for fun. It just, I don't know. It
0: doesn't add up to me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah. Looking forward to that being one of the, the ends that are tied up. Hopefully by the end of the series. He has oh, so, man. many,
0: so many ends to tie up in two books. Is it two books I still? Have... Is that what he's saying? It's two books.
1: That's what he says. So <sighs> many
2: loose ends. Probably be like. I'm so four. excited! I don't believe that troll. Okay, so uh, da, 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 da. wolf names. Oh. Yeah. So let's start with summer. The naming of summer. Was this this you matt could the names of the wolves be hints into the destinies of the kids totally caps lock (laughs) totally me i love
0: it i think that's a cool
2: theory
1: i i am the king of theories that are completely unsubstantiated by any sort of evidence
2: (laughs) please please enlighten our readers
1: i think there is a little bit like uh in in this one so but serial for like for example, serial Forel, who we're going to meet later, uh, totally Jacques and Hagar, or however you say his name, it's the same guy, unsupported by any sort of evidence. But that's how it is, and and that's kind of how I feel about these wolves. I, I think that um, I think their names and everything uh, play a big role into how they how the kids actually end up. For
0: what it's worth, I like this theory better than the serial Forel lives to this day as Jacques and Hagar.
1: Yeah, there, there's. <laughs> There's a little bit more to substantiate this one. But, uh, so, for example, Gray Wind. Uh, gray is kind of a stark thing. And Rob's success in battle he was he was very much a hit and run type uh, uh, commander. He'd go in quick and then he was gone. And a lot of battles at night and surprise attacks and things like that. Um, and his rise and fall was was fairly quick too, just like a gust of wind. Um, Things like that. We could go through all all the kids, but um,
0: yeah, no, great, what awesome. About, what, you don't um, even want to talk about Ghost, the coolest one. The coolest, oh the coolest part of your theory is Ghost.
1: Oh man, I, I didn't have the courage to actually type it out.
0: Do you I want actually me to do your, it? <laughs> your theory, yeah, do it. So the theory. Think, so as as anyone who's read all the books, and good God, really, if you don't want spoilers, stop listening because. It's going to get real now. It's going to get real. John is <laughs> stabbed, supposedly to death, at the end of the last book that's been released. Um, and, you know, every, given what what Gurm has done with deaths and bringing people back to life and having them not really dead, uh, everyone I know that read the books is like, oh, yeah, he'll come back he's and not he's not dead. really dead. Yeah. But if if Matt's theory here is, would hold water, ghost means that John, maybe has has warged into his his uh his wolf right and is kind of moving about winterfell as a ghost or sorry moving about the wall as a ghost of himself right and that he actually did die and is not alive and that's cool
1: yep i i i think that's that's my theory and I found out that that theory is not held just by me apparently it is a theory that's come up among other readers which disappointed me a little bit. I thought I'd made a groundbreaking discovery, but it was groundbreaking to me. Dang it. So I've heard that.
0: I've heard that uh, written before that they thought John died and would work into ghost, but I never heard the theory about, about the naming being destinies for them. And that that could, I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, We spent a, they spend a whole chapter in dance with dragons with Varamir Sixskins, a wildling who is of little importance until all of a sudden George gives him a whole chapter just to himself. And a big portion of that chapter talks about, um, how Varamyr thinks he's going to die and everything, but he knows that if he dies, he can warg into one of his animals' bodies and continue to live. Even if he, as a human, dies, his essence or his kind of his soul, a part of his soul at least, will live on in the animal that he wargs into before he dies. And so uh, I think, you know, Germs trying to drop us some hints there that that's going to come into play later. And it to- it doesn't totally flip RLJ on its head, but uh, it certainly doesn't it certainly makes R plus L equals J doesn't or Danny and John ending up ruling together in the end. It certainly doesn't make that fit as perfectly as we'd like it to. But yeah. I kinda like it. Yeah.
2: Mm, no. It makes it bullshit. <laughs> I knew you hate, ha- it. Ha- I knew <laughs> hate it. I knew you hate it.
0: Brooke passes on your theory. Also, no, and also Hard pass. I just think Hard pass. I think
2: that the interpretation I love your theory that the wolves' names are the kids' destinies, but I think the interpretation is just too literal, that he becomes a ghost. I think that perhaps maybe he reincarnates as something similar to what Catelyn reincarnated as, like a um, a zombie killer or something. That could be a possibility. Uh, maybe like a, a silent ghost-like assassin or, or, or I don't know something like that but he can't be dead because he has to marry danny and then they have to rule the seven kingdoms so
1: he's not dead he's just a wolf (laughs) i would not put
2: a pastor to sleep with a wolf either
1: (laughs) the
0: linchpin in your theory matt would be would be nymeria i don't remember i don't remember who nymeria was
1: so she was a Targaryen kind of warrior queen um, who also kind of branched out and settled some new areas and everything. In so,
0: Thorn, right? Or something?
1: Yeah, exactly. So she was kind of a traveler and stuff like that. Um, didn't like to stay put, it seemed like. Was she an and assassin? It, um, I don't know that she was an assassin, but she certainly held her own in combat and stuff. So
0: Anyway, interesting theory. I like it.
1: And then Rickon. We need to bring up Rickon because we never talk about him. Shaggy Dog is kind of a feral, you know, this kind of wild dog. Uh, and his even his name kind of implies that a little bit. Um, and we don't know exactly where Rickon is, but it's rumored that he's on Skagos, if that's how you say the name right, which is kind of a feral wild land with cannibals and stuff like that.
2: So. Unicorns. I'm fascinated to find out what kind of personality emerges from that experience and, and how he'll play into, you know, perhaps ruling the North again. Yeah. Rickon is my dark horse. Yeah.
1: Major dark horse.
2: Way to put it. Looking forward to that. Hopefully he just doesn't get written off. Um, so we got introduced to so many great characters. Littlefinger and Berries, we kind of touched on it. Uh, that they are going to be big players, but yeah, never, never would have guessed in a million years just how important that they were, especially figure Yeah, I love these dudes. <laughs> just they're just
0: uh, they're just scraping, clawing their way up through importance for seemingly very different reasons. It's hard for me to ever trust Varys. He says constantly, you know, I'm doing it for the good of the realm. I'm doing it for the good of the realm. I'm doing it for the good of the realm. And yet, like, just because these books are the way these books are, you don't want to trust him. But what if he's really right? <laughs> like, what if everything he's doing really is just for the good of the realm? And he's mm-hmm. the only good, real good guy in the whole series. So such a weird past. Like, a eunuch, he was a, a mummer for a while. Basically a slave, I think. And and then they, they skip this part, but... Rose to power through gathering of information. To be this trusted advisor, just a weird, weird path to power.
2: Well, it's also a very realistic look at at how a kingdom is run. I can only associate it with how a business is run, but it's it's not it's it's not one dimensional. It's all about people, right? It's about it's about the contributions to the overall greater good, or as he calls it, um, the good of the kingdom, and that and that comes from people. and He understands that he needs uh, a vast network, and he needs to uh, really massage that network to to keep it healthy. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a very realistic look at running a kingdom.
0: But what is his end game? Because you get the sense that he's a targ guy, right?
2: Oh, I didn't get that sense. Really? No. Hmm. Where did not that come up? Interesting that you're carrying that.
0: I, well, he's uh, he's associated in some way with Illyrio. Um, he's in contact with him, and Illyrio is is trying to push the Danny angle. Oh, that's right. I, I th-
2: forgot.
0: I think I think too. He he. Um, in later in the books, isn't he in, involved with the the Aegon stuff too?
2: I think he's just trying to play all sides, right, so that he can at least survive in the end.
0: May, well, maybe, but that so that 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 underscores what I was saying about I'm doing it for the good of the realm, and whether or not that's bullshit or not, either he's playing all sides so that he can live, which which is what I think Peter's doing, um, you know, playing all sides so that he can get the upper hand and, and you know raise his stature, uh, or he does have a plan and a very specific. Uh, path. I mean, don't forget, he's very, very active in the very last thing we see in the last book, which is killing Kevin Lannister. Like he's, he's, he's clearly trying to sow unrest in King's Landing actively. But I don't know to what end, whether it's to help Aegon in his path or, or what. But
2: hmm, yeah. Uh, I gotta reread the last <laughs> couple of books. Like seriously, I'm, I keep on forgetting all of these delicious little details that are happening, and it's a lot to it's a lot to remember. But also, maybe I shouldn't because that always colors, you know, your interpretation of rereading the first one. Yep. Anyways, anything else that you guys want to uh, Davos after dark?
0: Are we really gonna get out of here without talking about R plus L equals J? Because that'd be awesome.
2: We. <laughs> We already did that, that. That even if if Jay was a wolf, a ghost wolf, you
1: could still, still have it. True.
2: All right. So I think it's time to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.